You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What is happening? How are you guys doing? Are you staying sane? Uh, is your world put back together yet? Are you out there working? Are you out there hanging out with folks? Um, it's half and half here on the uh, West Coast. There is always the impending doom of some sort of lockdown. But I don't, I don't know if we're at a point as a society where they're going to say, hey, lock us down again. I don't know if they're going to let that happen. Uh, we're out hanging out with folks and trying to be as safe as possible while getting some of that much needed uh, starving for that much needed personal attention, a personal connection. And uh, today on the show, we are digging, we're going to reach out and uh, hopefully have a personal connection with two guests at the same time. This is a threesome, this episode, uh, and is a threesome on horror and thrillers. Uh, and uh, I'm very excited uh, to talk about a new film that is just coming now into the festival circuit uh you guys may or may not have heard about it and uh i know everybody listening to the show is starving for great content starving to hear what is the newest underground horror movie that's coming out that we haven't heard of yet what is the film that i could see that i could brag to all my friends that i saw it first and you guys gotta see this you gotta come over and watch this thing together with me uh well today this morning i got to see a screener of the last thing Mary saw. And it is a great movie. It is a movie that harkens back to, uh, I would say it felt like the 1970s sort of horror. Uh, also had a little bit of Kubrick in there, if you're thinking like Barry Lyndon, and maybe that's just aesthetically, but um, it's a very moody, very dreadful piece. It's full of dread. Um, and, uh, of course I have, a, a it's a special place in my heart for it because my good buddy, David Kruda shot it. Big congratulations to you, Crudog, for doing such a fantastic job on this period piece. It's a period film that takes place in the 1840s in that area. And so, uh, lighting something like that is fascinating, especially doing something that takes place uh, at night is fascinating because what did they use for light units then? It was all candles and whatnot, flame. Um, and so the movie is very gorgeous, very beautiful independent film. And Cruda introduced me to the director of the film, Eduardo Vitoletti. Very excited to get to know him. I know I've heard the stories from Crude Dog from being on set on how amazing it was to make this movie and uh, what a great director uh, Eduardo was to work with. Um, so we get to hang out, three of us, get to talk about what it's like to make horror. We get to talk about uh, what it takes to make your first film. This is Eduardo's first film. Uh, and uh, we talk a bit about uh, how he had done some shorts before this and he went to film school, but really this was his first undertaking. And he jumped in head first and made a lot of really really delicate decisions uh, as far as the pacing of this film, as far as um, sort of the the tone that this film provides. Like, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I will say this, the cast is amazing on this movie. Um, there is a, a surprise appearance of Rory Culkin and he, he shows up and just steals the scene 
uh, but Stephanie Scott is amazing. Judith Roberts is amazing. Um, the, 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 the cast is phenomenal. And when you look at this, the casting of this for a first-time director, um, I have so many questions. How did this process happen? How did you find these folks? So we talk a lot about that on the show. Um, and yeah, thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. And thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram and following the podcast Instagram. That's a love of the process POD on Instagram. Uh, lately, what have we been posting up there? I've been trying to keep you guys informed with what is coming out for episodes, but also the stuff that I've been working on. Uh, Gina's videos just came out. And so we've been releasing all sorts of behind the scenes stuff on both her videos, her video for keto and her video for uh, Lewis the child. Um, and uh, she's been getting fantastic responses. I'm very proud of Bean Beans. She's sitting behind me for killing it on both those videos. Um, and they're great videos to put out to an audience because the audience is so involved with B. Miller stuff. So um, it has been fun creating stuff for the fans of her. And if you haven't seen any of the stuff that I'm talking about yet, definitely go check it out. I am sure it'll be on my Instagram page, but it'll also be on Gina's Instagram page. Or uh, if you go to ginamanning.com, I'm sure a lot of that stuff will be posted up there as well. Uh, let's see, what else is going on with us? Uh, went and saw a few new movies. I ended up going to see The Green Knight, which I was very excited to see, and uh, went with Tanner and Gina to see it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. I fucking love that movie theater. I cannot say enough great things about that movie theater. Um, so uh, some folks were asking me on Instagram what I think. Uh, I think it's a great movie. I think it's a good movie. Um, I do have some issues with the film, but my issues are so minor in relation to the fact that a movie like that can be made, to a fact that uh, a company like A24 exists so that film directors can be telling strange and, and, and sometimes off-the-radar stories in such an artful way. And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like the artistry comes from a weird place for A24, but at least it's there. At least it's there. And there's something great about walking out of a screening from uh, those guys and hearing the audience ask questions or hearing the audience sort of get into like, did you fucking like that movie? Did you not like that movie? Did it pay off? But I really liked the production design and I thought... The way the director did this is really cool. That's really awesome. And to, you know, in a sea of entertainment that we're watching, uh, for, for most people to just sort of plug in and drool on themselves and go, and you just watch this content that we know all of the beats on, we know what's happening, we know where it's coming from, we know everything. And we just sort of sit there and go, just give it to me, give it to me. Uh, having this kind of content that exists where you don't know, and you're like, I don't know how I feel about that. I feel kind of strange about the way this is happening. Um, what else have we been watching? We're watching a new series on HBO right now. What is that one called? The White Lotus. The White Lotus. It's actually pretty good. I really enjoy it. Mike White is directing it uh, and has written it and put it together. And it's essentially about a resort in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, all of the wealthy 
uh, folks and their problems that uh, go there. Uh, I think it's really fun. I don't know what it is about it because the show has, that formula has a lot of the same sort of dramatic tropes that I would not have the patience for on other programs. Um, maybe it's just because it's taking place at a resort that I wish I was at. And so I'm vicariously living through these, you know, you know, kind of shitty characters. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's really great. And, you know, Steve Zahn shows up and uh, he's killing it. He's out of nowhere, just destroying it. Uh, fantastic cast all the way around. Um, I can't remember his name, but the guy who plays uh, the manager of the hotel, he's fucking great. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. It's actually a really great watch. It's shot really beautifully. And um, I've just been sort of hooked on it, which is nice. It's nice to feel that way. You know, you find something that you can get lost in. I can plug in and drool on myself. Uh, you know, it's good. And uh, so anyway, today's episode, today's episode falls into the type of film that I think you should watch if you want to be challenged. It's the type of film that I think you should watch if you want to f feel a little empathy, right? If you want to really get into sort of the claustrophobic situation that allows the horrible things to happen. Um, if you liked The Witch, you'll love this film. If you like, um, oh, let's go even further back. If you like old Kubrick, you'll like this film. If you like um, a film that just takes its time. And the director, Eduardo says it best on the show, asks the right questions in the first act. Sets up these questions that you want to get the answer to you, so you'll go on this ride. And he he go he takes you on a ride. And the thing that's really fascinating about this film, without giving anything away, is how he was able to satisfyingly pay it off the way he does. Okay? You curious enough now? If you're super curious and you're not able to see it, um, before you listen to this podcast, worry not. We don't give out any spoilers. We just sort of talk a bit. Uh, we dance around the edges of it. We talk a bit about how stuff's done and how it's made and sort of the, the, the inspirations for stuff. That's all there. Um, it is, it has been picked up. Big congratulations to the guys. It has been picked up by Shudder, so it will be on Shudder soon. Um, and that's a thing. And I know it just pay, it just played at the, the Fantasia Film Festival did really well. Uh, he said it was going to be at another film festival. It'll be in the podcast. You'll get it. Um, so yeah, get ready. Strap yourselves in. Let me stop delaying this. Let's get right into the episode. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Sit back and relax and listen to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. So we're here. I have today's a, a fun day. I have two guests on at the same time today. I'm hanging out with Eduardo and I'm hanging out with uh, David Crudo. 
How are you? Hi, Mike. Doing great. <laughs> I always love how awkward that response is. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Doing great. Hello. <laughs> Hello. We, we've decided to split our sentences in half, so I, I see. So for those of you listening, if you didn't listen to my long-winded intro, we're here to talk about The Last Thing Mary Saw. Um, I saw it this morning, fellas. So I got the link late last night, and I woke up early, and I watched it. And uh, it was it was fucking great. It was fantastic. I thought that uh, the pacing was really great. The sense of dread was amazing. Uh, and the acting, if anything, this is such a great study in the fact that all you really need is a, is a light source and really great actors. Um, and you guys really pulled that off. Thank you. Wow, that's very flattering. Thank you. Oh, well, you know, that's that's what I'm here for. Flattering. That's what the show is all about. <laughs> yes, uh, please continue. <laughs> uh, you guys are the guests. People want to hear you. Um, so let's uh, let's start from the beginning. This is your obviously this is your featured debut. You were doing short films before this, right? Um, a, a little bit. I think. Um, Recently, you know, it, it's kind of interesting what people end up finding out when uh, when your name is out and like they look up your IMDb and they find, you know, tons of credits and they, you know, they ask me about short films that I made when I was uh, in school. And I'm like, oh, I guess, yeah, I did that. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of interesting. But I, I always like to say that, I mean, this was one of my first movies in general. Uh, I did a little bit of work in the, the short form. Um, which doesn't quite like it it never was something that appealed too much to me it was just it, i i always worked on on uh on shorts as kind of like a gym building towards making a feature film um mm -hmm. and uh so this is one of definitely one of my first films in general yeah yeah well i only asked that question because you know there are a lot of young listeners here and they're just like all of us yeah. one day this guy was walking down the street and got struck by lightning and now he's a director <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's 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 oh my god yeah oh i i could i could spend the next 30 minutes telling you all everybody how that is just not true never happens it doesn't work like that anyway yeah well so how long how long did it take you to get this movie going from like sitting down and writing down the idea and sort of scripting the thing out and then trying to find the financing? How long was that process for you? Yeah. And, and that, and that, that's the important question, right? Like as much as, you know, like some people come out with a feature right out of the gate, but the truth is it's always, you know, it always takes a long time. I think, mm -hmm. um, the other day when I, when I was going through some of my notes, um, I realized that the first time I had written anything down, um, you know, about this movie, like the first kind of inkling of an inspiration was December 2017. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, draft of the script, I think I wrote it in August 2018. So and here we are, you know, like in the second, like in the third or fourth quarter of uh, 2021. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we are coming out into festivals. So um, I think I spent a solid I mean, we spent a good year. Uh, or so, um, developing the script, maybe a little less and then casting and, you know, financing kind of started to happen. Really, it started to kick into gear in uh, the spring slash summer, uh, mm -hmm. of 2019. And then we shot the movie 
in December of 2019, which uh, turned out to be incredibly serendipitous uh, because of what started to happen afterwards uh, with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then we edited throughout 2020, more or less, and we finished we finished post uh, uh, sound and color like the, the past uh, spring, more or less, um, spring 2021. And uh, and here we are, you know, and we are set to release it uh sometime in 2022 probably um early on in 2022 so yeah it's more or less like a three uh three and a half year process uh, to kind of get it to um to the audiences yeah yeah i mean it's important that we talk about that i think that a lot of folks that uh watch movies really don't understand why it takes so long for a movie to be made and to to just to make a movie let's say tomorrow someone handed me the cash and i'm off to the races that's still going to take at least two years you know and so a lot of folks don't like crude and i we 12 km that was seven years ago and we're still trying to get that made and then the the new Mm -hmm. one is you know what is it going on three years now maybe something like that um it just takes fucking forever and especially getting your first one done uh usually takes much much longer what, your first yeah. your first draft of this we was it always written to be very self-contained and in one location or was it larger oh yeah no it, it was definitely um there was always an intention on my end to make uh to write a movie that i could actually make um no like in spite of the circumstances like i think actually this movie kind of ballooned up a little bit as we, as we started to make it as far as who we um who we managed to get involved on the casting side and on the producing side. But, you know, I've always, I always wanted to write a movie that uh, if I had, you know, just a little sum of money I could make and I could present as a feature film. So always one location, Mm -hmm. the period aspect was always there, but I always had like a certain confidence that that could be achieved without having to, um, you know, to kind of, dip into like a bigger budget and honestly that turned out to be true even though we of course we um things got a little bit bigger but still like the budget that we had to achieve the time period as far as you know the lighting and the costumes and the and the production design it wasn't it wasn't huge or it was just kind of generally speaking less than the average period piece so Mm -hmm. um i always envisioned it to be something that i could make and i was sort of beautifully naive i think when i started to write it (laughs) because when you haven't made your first movie, you just think, okay, I'm going to write a movie and uh, I'm going to spend some time writing it and then I'm going to make it. And of course I'm going to make it. I mean, what could possibly get in the way of making a movie? <laughs> so it's a movie. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I never thought, Oh, this could also not happen. Uh, I did calculate some stuff, but as you know, uh, it, it's just, it was so, I was so kind of oblivious to, um, how many things were going to happen, like how long it actually takes like to get it done and like how long it takes to convince people that this first time uh, feature writer, director, this freaking kid, mm-hmm. this 22 year old kid can do this. It's like, you know, um, I, I like to say there is an example that I think it's, it's kind of a joke that my producer and I have, or like, you know, he always tells me like, I don't know, many, many people who would give their friend like just $10 for anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like we shouldn't get mad at, at people saying, no, I'm not going to give you X amount of money to make a movie if you haven't made one before. Right. So it, it is incredibly difficult in that, um, 
in that regard. Yeah, completely. It is very, I mean, the, the process of convincing anybody to get behind you financially can be very difficult. And then, I mean, we're, I run into this consistently on, you know, what, what has he done before? What have you done before? You know, how can we trust whether or not this person can take this money and run with it? And it's like, dude, I've fucking directed for like 40 years. <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't, with features, it hits this point where it just doesn't seem to make a difference. No matter how many shorts you do, no matter how many no. music videos you do, no one cares about any of that. And at the- Yeah, no, and when you're trying to get it off the ground, like all the little things that you do, like, you know, uh, finding the actors, and that's like, like, it's very important to me whenever I, I have conversations with friends of mine from school who uh, want to make their first films or like are about to maybe potentially make it. And it's like, it, it's just, let's be honest about like what you need. Like you need, you don't have any leverage, mm -hmm. right? Like you haven't, like nobody is going to Google you and find out that, you know, oh, you're this great director or this, this great writer who has like a, like a track record in the industry like it's just it, that just is not there so the question should always be when you're trying to get it off the ground how do i build leverage for myself mm -hmm. like what can actually help me you know kind of bypass that little stumble in the conversation where you know you have to be honest and say okay i've never done this before and that is working with producers who have a lot more experience uh casting actors who have recognizable faces and of course that are perfect for the part and you know they're very very talented and whatnot but it's like how can those little bits and pieces of leverage help me get my point across which is i want to make this movie mm -hmm. um yeah and and there's a certain level of honesty that has to go in, in that like okay this is where i am and this is what i need and what you need is mostly things on the outside of of your sphere yeah it's very true that's how crude and i met so when we when I was doing 12KM, I had shot all my stuff previously. And at that point in time, I decided to make that movie in a language I didn't speak. And I went, yeah. I'm not going to be that jerk that tries to direct a different language and also be the cinematographer. Like that brain switch between, hey, move, right. the, move the 5K over there. And then also, what were we talking about? I just couldn't handle it. And I, yeah. and I found uh, Kruda. And we, Kruda, we had been like uh, kind of talking online prior to that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a fan of your your work for a while. Ooh, um, thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I definitely like knew of you in Boston and I was I was very aware. And, you know, I, I think you do bring up a good point where, you know, I think a lot of people look at things like film financing as an investment and they're careful with their money as as they should be. But there's an element of, you know, taking a risk and taking a leap of faith that I think a lot of people aren't doing these days. I think you see that a lot with sequels and with big budget tent poles that are just there because they're safe investments. Mm -hmm. yeah. But much like, you know, much like I took a, a chance on doing 12 cam for free and, and, you know, meeting you and hoping that, you know, you would make something great out of it. Same thing. Eduardo took a, you know, took a chance on me shooting. I took a chance on Eduardo. Like we all, you know, we all had a leap of faith moment for lack of a better term. And, you know, ended up making something really great. So I, I think you end up with disappointments here and there, but I think I think more risks and more leaps of faith need to be taken for this, you know, for this industry to keep keep growing and doing really interesting things. Mm hmm. I agree, man. And you're you know, we're just at least I feel like in the past two months, I've been seeing stuff that feels like it's taking a little bit of a risk, which is great. Like I just saw the Green Knight the other day and 
I've got issues, but I overall like the fact that that movie was made. <laughs> yeah, I I was just having a conversation with Crude about The Green Knight, actually, which, like, I'm definitely far from the biggest fan of mm-hmm. that movie, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, I think that working a lot, like, you know, writing a lot and writing being, a like, a very crucial part of my process and, quite frankly, seeing a lot of flaws in my writing and like knowing what it takes to like fix problems every time I like I've become a little cynical (laughs) yes of course when when I when I when I watch movies that work so well on so many different levels that are you know not literally and so directly connected to the story itself and to the writing itself like I just I can't quite swallow them Mm -hmm. all that much uh that being said it's like you said you know just the fact that that movie like I went out to a movie theater to watch a movie that was like that like he fucking took the money and ran in a beautiful way and it's like he got away with murder and that's i think part <laughs> of the you know i as much as like whether you like that movie or not that is one of those pieces that advances our common understanding of filmmaking like filmmaking took a step forward with that movie even though i may not like it all that much it, it is objectively something that uh, furthers the argument and you don't see a lot of movies that that you know you don't see a lot of people putting money into movies that uh go out on such a limb yeah well i mean you could say that about a lot of different i agree with you completely and there is this sense of i i think as a an audience right now we're so used to just getting fed getting fed whatever we want you know like watching netflix is like going to an opium den and have them like just run it right in your arm it's like oh you like transformers here's a line of that you know and yeah we're we're just so passive as an audience like passive thinking as an audience with a lot of the stuff that we're ingesting these days and it just feels so comfy and safe and um and you look at i i would pretty much say anything that a24 does is kind of Thankfully, they exist. I don't necessarily agree with everything, and I don't necessarily like yeah. all the third acts of everything that they do. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's something great about hearing people leave a cinema and talking about it and and, yeah. and actually talking about the techniques that are used with it and, and addressing certain things. And it's like, oh, right, right. That's what, that's what movies are about. And... I know that Scorsese was shitting on Marvel quite a bit, but that's ultimately what he what he was saying was that there was a point in time where you would go watch a movie and you would leave discussing it. And it yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that you had to have liked that movie or that you connected with that movie. It just yeah, you know, and thankfully we have films like that from the 70s and even more modern films. You talk about like Beyond the Black Rainbow, that movie it's yeah. such an influential film for so much stuff that we see right now. And, and it's not the type of movie that I would pop in on like a Thursday night <laughs> and sit in bed yeah. with some mac and cheese and watch Beyond the Black Rainbow. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it's great. And what I like about the film that you guys did is that the third act does pay off. And there's so many art films right now that are coming out that are just trailer meat. And it feels that way. Yeah. Um, and when I started to watch it this morning, it was like the perfect setting for me because no one was up, the place was quiet and, uh, I just was able to get lost in it and you have to sort of get over the years and years of torment that we've had on like, uh, aggressive editing and intense pacing and 
how are you feeling right now? Do you need more? Do you, do you need more intention? Yeah. You know, and, uh, and you guys did a really great job of building a, a sense of tone and dread that I like. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to ride this out and it pays off. And you didn't necessarily need to pull out all the punches at the end. You know, there isn't a yeah. spoiler. There's no explosion at the end of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it pays off so wonderfully emotionally um, that uh, you, you, it's a great reminder that you really don't need much to, yeah. uh, you know, really entertain an audience, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I was I was always um, very, very proud. As soon as the movie started to kind of kick into gear in the edit and I realized, okay, this is really coming together, the second and third act of the movie just made me always really proud because I did have that feeling like, okay, this is a movie that's building towards something mm -hmm. and that something feels, even though the story itself is, you know, like it's taking, uh, it's taking, chances, uh, taking chances and it's, you know, it's kind of at some points it moves around and it's like, you know, it asks more questions than it gives answers. But I do find there to be like I had a clear intention as far as where where this was going towards the end. And I, I am also very, very, very happy about that. Like for me, good movies, it's like you said, it's it's part of it is am I still talking about it after days, but also in a more kind of uh, quiet, like personal way is like, am I still like thinking about it and am I just like at home thinking and like you know about a scene or like the overall message that it left me with and I think you know I think during the edit like the very ending of the movie was one of the last things that uh we ended up kind of putting together to some degree like it's always the very beginning and the very end they come in last mm -hmm. because they my 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 theory on this is at least you know especially like those two extremes like they have to make you feel like you opened the book and then you closed it mm -hmm. and uh and yeah so I, I was very very happy about the the ending and as far as the pacing as you said you know like the super aggressive editing i think it's interesting because the way that people are responding so far after we screened it last night um i mean i'm very very happy about it and i think some of the some of the comments about the editing and like how people are feeling about the kind of experiential value of like the slower pace and whatnot, you know, it's interesting because for me, that's also never quite a note about editing itself. Mm -hmm. Like if people find a movie to be too slow, it's always, I think, a comment on the writing. It's like, if there is a compelling enough question at the, at the, on, on the one extreme, uh, you can stretch the answer, figuratively speaking, as far as you want it. And so you can like space things out as, as slowly and as much as you want it. But if the question at the beginning is compelling enough, hmm. you are going to stay with it. And you don't need to like cut every other second and like, you know, a thousand cuts in two minutes. It, it's just, I don't know that a lot of movies that I watch, that I've watched recently, like trust that and they think that you know when you get into like the screenings during the edit it's like oh this is too slow but it's like i worked with such a great editor on this movie matthew hart who he always kind of find that note behind the note and it's like when people are telling us that this is too slow we don't have to just like pick like make things go faster it's like it seems like the questions that we're asking in the first act may not be compelling enough yet so that people don't want to stay with it yeah. That was a great exercise. And, you know, I, I think the people that so far have liked the movie 
feel compelled by the question at the beginning, the sort of like general question of what's going to happen um, and can stay with it. So I think it's always important to find that like the real issue behind the it's too slow. Because there are some movies that I find too slow, but it's not about the edit. Like it's just about like, okay, I feel like I'm not curious about what's at the end. Mm-hmm. But so many times people answer that with, okay, let's cut this, let's cut that, let's make it faster, and, you know, like faster and faster and faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it just becomes this big, like, kind of, I don't know, unclear direction um, that gives me a headache. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, multiple directors that have been on the show have also said this similar thing that notes are usually the response of, of something that came earlier that wasn't correct. And then, you know, when you get notes from folks that are like, you should cut this scene, you're like, eh, why do you feel that way? And as a filmmaker, you you have to really sort of question that and go like, well, what is it about this scene that you don't like? Or what is it? Oh, you're lost interest. And then even when I'm doing corporate stuff or if I'm doing music videos to edits or if I'm doing film edits, it's the same thing. I'll get a note specifically on a section and I'll go change two things, you know, you know, three sequences earlier. And then I'll mm-hmm. show them the same cut and they'll go, wow, it's perfect. You cut it perfectly. And you go, yeah, yeah. You can play ignorant. Yes, it's perfect. Yeah, you're right. I did. I shifted that clip. You're right. And you didn't, you really yeah. didn't, you didn't really shift anything because it's the setup that's wrong. Or maybe it's the music cue earlier that's wrong. Or maybe it's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the shooting it in a single shot and your pacing starts to get screwed up. And then that ruins your pacing for the next, you know, five or six segments. Um, yeah. It's all subliminal and subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, let's get let's get Kruda into this conversation. How did you? Oh yeah, please. How That's did you? Fun. How did you guys meet? Yeah. How did you guys first hook up? Um, I got the script through uh, Alex Franklin, my agent over at Zero Gravity, and I remember I I was on a hiatus of features for like five or six years because uh, I'd done a string of them that were just awful experiences, and um, <laughs> uh, you know I was just so broken by it. And I told him I was like, "Hey, I, I'd love to get back into narrative, but you know I want to have the resources to do things right, and I don't want to do you know any movie under X amount." And he he <laughs> sends me this script. And he goes, "Well, I know this is about a third of that amount, but uh, you should check it out." <laughs> so. Um, so I went to I went to meet Eduardo. I put together a little lookbook, and I also watched a, a short. And forgive me, I forget the name of it right now, but um, a short that Eduardo had done. I think either in school or after, like right after school. And I, I for me, I just saw a lot of potential. I was like, this guy clearly gets it, and the script is fantastic. And I'm just gonna throw out my lookbook and see what happens. And I feel like we hit it off pretty quickly. And you know, you mentioned the word dread twice already, and it keeps coming up in reviews. That was a major, major word in our first um, in our first meeting, talking about what the film should look like, what the tone should be, the colors. Like we should visually convey dread, and I think it really succeeded in that sense. Yeah, I remember the first time that we talked. I mean, the it, it, like I was very, very happy because I think you know I was being introduced to um, a few different DPs, but Bakruda was the only, like I had sent, uh, we had sent him the script and he was the only one who like, when he sent me references and we talked about references, I mean, I, it, it, I, I just saw, I mean, not many film references, mm-hmm. a lot of mostly painterly references. And that told me two things. Well, first of all, okay, this is really, like the look that I envision for this movie, but also this is a person who read a script that's 
a period piece and immediately understands we have to like our process is going to be about going back in time yeah and uh it, every every department has to approach it that way and when when your visual references are you know paintings and you immediately are like you're taking a step back yeah. you're kind of exiting like the film sphere a little bit it's like that's the same reason why when i'm writing I, I i don't watch a lot of movies i try to watch as little as possible because you know there there's so many great genre and horror movies out there it's like it's so easy to get seduced mm-hmm. and to let that trickle into your language but and that that was part of it for us but also like wow this guy really like is so committed to like creating a capsule um and that to me as far as a professional relationship that that is what that is what started it for me um and then of course you know like i uh whoever ends up working with him gets a chance to work with him like you i don't know it's like (laughs) i i feel safe when he is there on set and it's like there's something that you know on a visual level i feel safe because i know that what he's doing is just you know he's so tuned in with why we're doing this why does the scene have to be like always the why but also like you know he um i don't know i feel like to some degree like he kind of held it together a lot on set Mm -hmm. we're shooting really fast limited choices to make sometimes so um it worked out pretty well right off the bat it was uh it's also really smart to be working off of uh uh painterly references too because of the time period in general and the light sources for the time period in general um and that must have been a challenge for you kruda like um trying to figure out where your key sources were coming from and then you know really sort of leaning into the candlelight vibe was that was that interesting for you was that a challenge yeah it was it was definitely a challenge um you know i think the the big thing was trying to figure out how to do it as accurately as possible without you know having the resources like some some much bigger period films will have the resources to actually light everything with candles and we just didn't have the you know the money or the or the crew or mostly the people to support that it would be a lot of candles hmm. um, so we had to work with you know smaller led units and and i ended up buying a bunch of bulbs on on amazon to do some fire yeah. stuff um, but you know, we also shot on the Sony Venice with fairly fast glass. So we were able to make use of the, um, you know, the high ISO features and that, that really allowed us to see into the dark. And, you know, there were a few, a few points where we definitely pushed it to the point where, you know, we'd look at each other and be like, I hope this works later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think overall, you know, it was, it was, a it was a fun exercise in, sort of creativity and um you know uh minimalism in terms of the the size of the lighting setups you know the biggest thing was to really convey the the story and the the feelings or lack of of feelings Mm -hmm. in every scene the interesting the interesting thing also about the lighting is i think the times that we had to you know like fake the candlelight using those uh artificial light sources i feel like that would happen strangely enough mostly during the interiors like when i when i look at all the exteriors in our movie uh which seems to be like the most challenging scenario to put a candle on because of also the you know like the wind and it's very Mm -hmm. cold and it it didn't quite stay on but i think most of our exteriors um i think we're pretty truthful to like actual candle look like there are scenes where people are walking through through the field with just lanterns that are actually candles and it's it's interesting that 
you know, that probably would read as more difficult than doing that inside. But the one thing that I was very happy about um, as far as lighting those exteriors is, you know, you see so many times there are are movies where um, even though they're set in a period, the moonlight is, you know, either overpowered or it's like blue Mm -hmm. or it's, you know, this kind of strange silver. And, uh, you know, those moments that he was talking about were like, I hope this works. Like, I hope people can actually see this uh, <laughs> later where I, I think a, a lot of them outside and like we were really committed to the, the real candles um, when it was probably the hardest, which was really fun. I mean, and it paid off, I think, immensely. Mm. Um, in yeah, the I, product. yeah, I haven't really seen many examples of people using artificial sources and, and nailing the real look of things like candles or fire. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to get close and there were just some scenes that were so creepy or poignant or, you know, even like fourth <laughs> wall, you had, you had some actors looking right into the camera a couple of times and having those real flames that were dancing in the wind and having those, you know, maybe the wind hits a little too much and their faces go completely black for a second, you know, like it, it heightened the feeling of the film. Well, we're also fortunate that we're in a time period right now where audiences and producers are actually okay with low key stuff. It seems, I mean, we could probably think, thank David Fincher for that, but there's a whole lot of like dark, dark material that goes out there that everybody just sort of accustomed to these days, which is really cool yeah. because then we can get really experimental with how we're lighting these things and how realistic we can be with the lighting for these. Um, I still have a love for a lot of that replicate, a lot of that fake shit that they used to do in the '90s. But there, <laughs> there is, there is a, a fascinating new way to play with stuff. Like just when we were doing the twelve cam basement stuff with the flashlight, and that was basically our key for that. It it, yeah. it it ends up becoming easier for the talent and the actors. It's faster to shoot in theory. It's faster to shoot that way. Um, and yeah. then the the stuff just looks new. It looks fresh. It looks interesting, you know? Yeah, I think in general, uh, the general audience has become very intuitive when it comes to, you know, like, what are some of of the things that pull you out of a story? And recently, I've also, you know, been able to appreciate um, a lot more movies doing like, like actually committing to the natural look of what would this room actually look like? You know, like you see a lot of period pieces, whether it is the, you know, like the 1800s or the 1900s and whatnot, but it's like, one of the things that is going to not make you appreciate a period piece is like if at any point you actually exit that capsule, mm-hmm. how do you keep people locked in that capsule? You, you, you have to have like, you have to challenge them a little bit to squint their eyes. And like, you, you have to use the actual candle or you have to commit to, you know, like not seeing everything mm-hmm. because as much as that may, may read as slightly frustrating in the moment, you know, one of the one of the one of the, one of the comments that's sticking the most with me, and that I'm um, appreciating a lot so far in uh, people responding to the movie, is the fact that you know, like they, n- no one's questioning where we are in time. It just feels like it is. It, it it appropriately feels like the time that we're trying to portray, and that is especially beautiful when a lot of the things that we were using, production design, lighting wise, it's like. They were not, of course, they were not entirely accurate, but it's like the lighting being minimal, minimalistic, Mm -hmm. um, locks you in a Mm -hmm. lot. Yeah, I get that. And it's, 
It all comes down to using these techniques the proper way to sort of mill out the emotion that you want from the performances or from, from the script. And I think mm. that that's a very smart move that you both did because at that point you're just a hundred percent focused on like the quiet little things that the actors are delivering to you. Yeah. And that's this, and that's be, this movie. Um, you know, it has to be appropriate for the material too. You know, the, this, this type of shooting would not have worked for a, a different film, but it worked for this one, you know, and, and you also think about the audience, right? Like this is not a, this is not a movie to just like throw on at any point. This is, you know, you, you turn off all the lights in your house, you shut the curtains and you sit down, you watch it in the dark, you know, like you set the environment for it. And I'm sure the, I'm sure the marketing folks didn't like the lack of light in some of the stills, mm. but, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's, it's an experience, right? Like, like if you look at a still, it only tells part of the story, but if you watch it over the course of 24 frames a second and you have the sound and you have the music and maybe you have some dialogue over it, like it's, it's all part of the overall experience that you're just not going to get from a random still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think in general people like, it's kind of surprising to me how, you know, as much as we have progressed in incredibly on, you know, like the visual tools and the, and, you know, the cameras and lights were like, you know, we were shooting with a camera that <laughs> just working with the Venice and that level of darkness, you know, there was never really a point in the movie when we were doing the color or the edit, like I never quite came across many shots that were uh, to which we had to say, you know, okay, the, like we need a sky replacement. It's so grainy. We got to fix that. Like it was never an issue of fixing it. So we have that amazing technology. And, uh, but at the same time, like, like I'm kind of, I, I, I'm personally almost surprised about like how little like people are so far, like feeling bothered by the, by the lack of light. And especially considering that so far we haven't screened a mo that movie in a movie theater yet. And I was terrified. I mean, <laughs> like I am, I am still a little bit terrified because, because, you know, when you're sending the screener out, mm -hmm. you know, for reviews and whatnot, and when people are watching it virtually at a festival, it's like, there's always a little bit of, of control that you're losing over how your movie is showing. And I've been like terrified of how this looks, but there's strangely, I feel like maybe there's like more patience for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that speaks to the, the great, I mean, the fantastic work that Cruda did. I think also what was lovely was uh, your collaboration with our production designer, Charlie. It's like in this movie, the production design and the lighting department are like exchanging exchanging props almost. Like he, he was telling me the story, the story where our gaffer, Mike, towards the end of the shoot where we needed more and more candles. Like he was just asking, uh, of course, for candles from our production design department. Mm -hmm. And he was like, at, so it's like the equivalent of asking for a light source at that point, but he was not talking <laughs> to the lighting department. Yeah, so yeah. that was, it's all, it's all kind of jumbled together. And like, I don't know, I, I find that really, really interesting about um, our process for sure. Well, when you were talking about being uh, terrified of screening in a theater, it just brought back, <laughs> it brought back some brutal memories. Years ago, I did a doc. I shot a documentary and uh, we spent weeks color grading this thing. And we intentionally went through and like you, like you do when you color grade, you intentionally go through and you change everything that you want. And we dialed yeah. in all our highlights to be yellow. Like there was a specific thing that we wanted. And we were screening at a, I forget what fucking festival it was. We were screening at a festival and uh, the director had me come out, which was really nice. 
And uh, he's like, D- do me a favor. Just go talk to the projectionist because he was nervous. He's like, go talk to the projectionist. Make sure everything's going to yeah. be good. And the screen's well. And I go, okay. So I go up into the booth, you know, and the guy's up there and he's, you know, he's got his pants up too high and he's sweating. And he looks at me and he goes, and he goes, uh, thank God you're here. And I go, what? <laughs> he goes, I fixed, he goes, he said this, I fixed your movie. And I went, what? What, what do you mean you fixed, you fixed my movie? And he goes, I had to go through and rebalance the projector to get all your whites pure white. <laughs> so the guy oh my God. went through and color graded in the projector the entire movie. Oh my God. And this was about 15 minutes before we screened. And I went, I don't care what you do. I don't care if, you, if, if it requires throwing it on the ground and rebooting it. Fix the fucking thing now. <laughs> and he, he's like, no, I fixed it. And I go, you're a projectionist, not a cinematographer. Fix it. All yeah. you have to do is make sure that, that thing's properly balanced. Screen the fucking thing. It was a nightmare, dude. And so, yeah, you never know. You never know when you're screening. And there, there, are, there are dramatic stories from filmmakers all over the place that go into a screening room and you're just like, is this right? Why don't, what am I looking yeah. at? I mean, yeah. every time I watch a cut of my movie, uh, and sometimes I, sometimes when I get like a like a like an MOV deliver from our post house to like have it or something, I typically like the first thing I do is I text David. I'm like, why does this look wrong? What's going on? What's happening? <laughs> and that, like it it happens just by because it's human nature. You know, you've seen something so many times you don't even recognize it anymore, which is strange. But you know, for instance, the other day I was having a problem even just on my computer. Like it doesn't even doesn't even have to go as far as the projectionist but it's like i was i was i was i was playing the mov on QuickTime, and i look at it and i was like oh my god we didn't fucking color the movie this way like that's not that's not <laughs> it that, that, that that's it's all it's all red and it's all so crunchy and it doesn't look right and then of course you know i text my our post guy and i'm like what's going on what's happening and he's like just open it on bl fucking c man like it's, it's quick time <laughs> it's the so, same th- it's the same thing here we, we're color grading music videos and stuff we'll send it to client and they're like oh my god this looks like shit i'm like what are you watching it on a fucking flip phone <laughs> like for yeah. christ's sakes please just open it on the device that everybody else in the world uses and watch it on that uh and, yeah. and and that and that story that you that you told about like the highlights being yellow and everything it's like sometimes some folks are still very very like obsessed with the idea of what a crisp kind of perfect looking movie should look like mm-hmm. and it takes away from so many movies like mm-hmm. if i don't see grain on screen i'm like you just told me which camera you shot it on you know you just told me that you had lights all over the fucking place it, it, it it's artificial like the imperfection of the look is it adds so much to it so you got to be patient with that well credit if it's uh if it's too imperfect like there were a couple of times like at the beginning of of uh the di when (laughs) you called me freaking out that like half of it was blue or something like that i had to walk you off a ledge it was just like all right hold on it's all good you probably have a wrong setting (laughs) no there's still there's still a a dent in my floor that I'm staring at right now because it, in that moment I think I threw a chair across the room. Um, 
going back to the to the first question of you know how what does it take to make a movie like well four years and a lot of fucking chairs that you throw across the room <laughs> dude you eventually hit a point where you just don't toss chairs anymore it just happens oh, or you just don't have any chairs left I'm it just it just starts to happen internally where you're like inside you're just kicking your heart a little bit and on the outside you look really calm and everybody's like why are you pissing blood oh i don't yeah. know <laughs> Eduardo's <laughs> uh, Eduardo's new contract has him with only bean bags. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, Pretty but it, I mean that's the the struggle's real there, Crude. I can hear you cringing as we talk about this stuff because with you know with the lack of Sempty, which used to be around, you know I think they're still kind of around, but everything's being screened on everything, and who the fuck knows? You just walk into to uh, Best Buy and you can see every fucking ridiculous setting on a television just to sell new hardware that's fucking with what we do uh as far mm -hmm. as like photography is concerned um and so it's it's difficult and it's now when we have so many options in post where we can do anything we could tweak any yeah. color so we can get down to the minutiae of minutiae and be sitting in that room over the shoulder of the poor colorist going can you uh tweak that point six you know and then it goes out into a world that is completely fucking unstable. And you're like, well, yeah. that 0.6 really doesn't matter when it's screened on that TV VCR combo in somebody's yeah. house, you know? Yeah. It, no. And at some point my, my callers had to kind of sit me down it's, uh, or like our, our post people sometimes, you know, when I have those moments of panic, they had just kind of had to virtually <laughs> sit me down uh, yeah. when, you know, they had to tell you like, listen, like people like this, this is the way your movie looks, but, some people are going to watch it on their phone. Some people are going to watch it on their TVs. Some people are going to watch it in a movie. You just cannot control that. Yeah. And uh, so the kind of democratization of, of, of filmmaking where everybody, like more people can see more stuff, more or less everything, does bring in this level of discomfort for us where we just, you know, you're like sending a baby. It's like sending a child out to to college when they're like three years old and it's like i guess i guess they can stand but like i don't know how the fuck is it gonna work when people just watch it on on on, on an iphone like this movie it's you know but so you just kind of have to let go a little bit yeah but 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 your film sure you can you can appreciate it on an iphone but you really have to be in that scenario where you have good sound it's, and i yeah. don't know if you feel the same way but for horror horror is all sound like I can, yes, 100%. I can, I yes, can completely like, dismiss what you do, Crude, as long as I have great sound. Yeah, the, I mean, why, why is he even on? Yeah, but I mean, it, it's 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 all like the sound does, like it 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 takes over all the work that you do for the atmosphere. Like it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the other departments, but I mean, to some degree, it takes over my job too. Yeah, like it it it's just you're setting yourself up to to tell a story that and to make a movie that is experiential to a great degree mm -hmm. uh, when you're making a, a genre piece, especially a horror movie. And you have to let the sound people kind of, you know, come in and do their portion of writing. But going back to Cruda for a second, like the like as far as the atmosphere and like what we were trying to do, like one great thing that I was thinking about, as you were mentioning, um, like the the restrictions and the lighting. I mean, one really fun thing, and I and I love um, crew to, to actually speak on this a little bit more is like there are so many moments where we had like one or two shots to 
get to get a scene in, like to finish shooting a scene and like mm-hmm. just, you know, five minutes with like two shots because the lack of time and part of it was our language. And just, I remember having, of course, it was very difficult, but I remember having a lot of fun, you know, kind of treating actually each scene like, okay, one one shot, how much can we fill that shot? Like how how much depth can we bring into that shot? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my favorite part, I think, of the shooting process as far as the visuals. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Karita? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's I, I think it's important in in storytelling that you distill each scene down into like the bare minimum thing that it's trying to tell. And you know, I, as as directors and writers, like you know, I, I know you guys kind of get into that as well. It's like, what is the emotion behind the scene? What is what is the connective tissue that it's getting us from the scene before it to the scene after it? And I think you can look at it visually as well that, that yeah, there's usually, you know, for lack of a better term, a master, right? So like a master should suffice if you cannot go and do anything else. What is the one perspective that you can show in that scene? Um, you know, the only reason I, I say master as for lack of a better term is because a lot of times it's considered to be just a big wide shot of what's happening mm-hmm. and that it's not necessarily it, you know, it could be a close up of someone sitting, looking at something, you know, that gets the point of the scene across and, you know, having a minimalist approach. I mean, it's, it, it was a big part of this film overall, you know, from, from the lighting to how we shot it to just necessity, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, I think, I think it was really good that we had a very clear intention with each scene. And, and if we were lucky enough to have, more time we would then you know figure out other things to put in there all right it's time to take a break do the ad reads for the show first up our good friends over at puget systems if you're in the marketplace for a new computer if you're an editor if you're a filmmaker if you're a sound designer if you're just a video gamer and the old machine that you have just ain't cutting it. It's time to build yourself a new computer. And instead of going to one of those websites where you have to literally give them a blood sample and sign away your life and be paying it off long after you have to throw it out, build yourself a PC. Oh, you said PC. Yeah, I did. I said PCs. You can build yourself a stable PC that runs perfectly, that is custom built for your needs. So it's custom built for the software you use. Um, and save yourself a lot of money. You can take that money you saved and go buy yourself a high-end monitor. You can take that money you save and go buy yourself that color correction console that you want from Blackmagic, who's our next sponsor. But uh, if, like I said, I found these guys years ago. I, I didn't want to build my own PC. I needed something that was reliable, that had good customer support, and I found the dudes over at Puget Systems. Go to PugetSystems.com, check them out. And speaking of support, excuse me, on my older system, my seven-year-old system, we just had some trouble. We had a couple of crashes that happened randomly. And so I called up Puget Systems. I'm like, okay, so uh, seven years later, have we hit the point? Are we at that aspect of this stuff? And and a real person wrote back and said, hey, do me a favor, do this, get me this error log and send me the email with the error log. So I sent him the email with the error log and he goes, all you have to do is disable this. And the machine's back up and running. How cool is that? be able to talk to somebody fantastic 
You want to know what I'm talking about? You want to be a part of this experience? You want to build your own system? You want to like get into a point where the tools that you're buying are working for you? You're not working for the tools? Go to PugetSystems.com. Check it out. Also supporting the show, as always, good friends over at Quasar Science. I am very excited. I'm in pre-production right now on a music video that I'm going to shoot in about a week. Uh, and I'm going to be bringing my Quasar tubes. I'm excited. I was looking at Quasar's um, Instagram account. I think it's just Quasar Science at Instagram. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, on their Instagram account, they were doing posts with how people were using their LED tubes. And there's this really great post of uh, uh, this portrait that was shot. I think it was like in Chicago or something. On the street, sun is setting behind this woman and they hold a quasar tube right next to the camera. And then they were shooting it, looked like with a red. And it was 800 ASA and four F4 stop. And he had this beautiful um, key light that uh, with the sun setting in the background, it was just beautifully done by holding the tube right there over the actor's face. And finding the right angle, finding that shadow line. And then just nailing it in. And I liked it so much, I screenshot it. I'm like, fuck yes, I like that. I'm going to use that technique somewhere else. It's really cool. Um, so go check it out. Get yourself a Quasar tube. You can do really cool shit like that. They're portable. They don't require much power. A lot of them are battery powered. You could just take that thing out on the street, wave it around, and get that key light that you need for a close-up. And you're good to go. Go to QuasarScience.com. Check out what I'm talking about. Follow them on Instagram. I think it's just Quasar Science on Instagram and see the stuff that they post about because they're always posting about the work that folks do with their gear. And these guys, that company is built, constructed by gaffers. So it's people, the people that run that company are people that work on film sets. So that means something. QuasarScience.com, check it out. I said it before, I'll say it again. Good friends over at Black Magic are sponsoring the show. We have Black Magic as a fucking sponsor. What an elite podcast this is. Hold on as I'm looking up their website. <laughs> what an elite podcast, Black Magic. These guys are big enough to have Black Magic as their sponsor. Yes. I'm very excited uh, to shoot this music video. They sent me over. Um, hold on. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to get their fucking website here. Uh, they sent me over a brand new Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K Pro. I'm excited about this thing. I'm going to shoot this video in 6K. Um, I can give you a little bit of a tease of what we're doing. It's essentially a, uh, an old school hip hop style music video shot for some interesting acts, some interesting people. I can't give that away yet, but um, I want to shoot it in the vein of uh, early 2000s, late 90s hip hop videos. So like 99 Problems, like a Jay-Z kind of thing, like a little mix of like Beastie Boys kind of thing going on. Um, and so I'm excited because this camera shoots raw and I'll be able to color grade on the fly. I also have to shoot this video really quick. Uh, and I have a very small crew and I've obviously, me being me, I have so many different setups planned for it. Um, and so, I wanted something that was small, I wanted something that was portable, and I wanted something that had the, the dynamic range that doesn't require me to bring in a, a boatload of lights. Because I'm probably just gonna do this with a handful of lights for this. 
because uh, I just don't have the fucking time. I don't have the time to light it. Um, so definitely check out Black Magic. I will have the link below in the description. Let me find it right now. Stand by. You would think that, you know, your podcast host would do all this research uh, before sitting down. Uh, but I just want to make sure. Here it is. It's blackmagicdesign.com. And not only do these guys make really great cameras, but they do really awesome live production uh, equipment. They are the beasts behind DaVinci Resolve. Um, and uh, they also create all the color correction consoles. Um, but to everybody, sort of, and they do uh, monitors as well. But everybody's leaning into this live stream stuff because of COVID. And so these guys were creating really interesting switchers and stuff so that you could be streaming to your clients at the same time that you're recording your commercials. Um, really good stuff. Head on over to blackmagicdesign.com and check it out. Uh, let's see. We got them. We got them. We got them. Who am I forgetting? I think that's it. If you are enjoying this podcast and uh, you're new to the show and you look at the queue on Apple Podcasts, or if you look at the queue on Spotify and you're like, wow, there's 140 something episodes. Do I go all the way back to number one and start? Well, you should. If you're a true comic book fan, you would. But if you want to skip around, if you want to find all the shows that are about directors, if you want to find all the shows that are about chefs, if you want to cherry pick your experience, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. And I've done it all for you there. I've done all that laborious work. Um, and by the way, I fixed the links that were for some fucking reason broken on the website. So when you now go to the website, if you click the link in my Instagram bio these days to get to the show, it'll take you to working button links that will open up the show on Apple Podcasts. It'll open up the show on Spotify. So I fixed it all for you. Um, so definitely go check that stuff out. And lovewiththeprocess.com. All right, let's get back to it. It's fascinating when you watch a movie like the film that you guys did um, because it's all about cinematic language. And you, with a movie like this, it's almost like going to, it's, it's almost like having a best friend that has parents that weren't from the US and you go over to their house for dinner and you start to like decipher the family language and you start to understand that family language in the first you know, the first five minutes that you're in your, you're in their place, you're like, it smells kind of weird in here and they're speaking kind of strange and you're trying to figure it out. And then once you do, you start to understand that the pacing of it, you understand the environment in which, you know, the story's coming at you and you really enjoy it. And to take that terrible analogy and put it towards what we're talking about here, um, there are moments in the beginning of this film where I went, okay, so these guys are being very methodical, there isn't a lot of movement. There's not a lot of camera movement happening here. Um, and so the story is being told within these frames, which I'm a huge fan of that. And then there hit this point, this one shot specifically that sticks with me after watching the movie. And it was when, um, uh, what's her name? It was Judith Roberts that played the grandmother, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And when she said, get your brother, call your brother. And there was that shot outside 
where uh, the dudes come out of the darkness with the lanterns and there's this slight camera movement and the and the brother walks through that shot in that camera movement and I was like oh that's tasty and it was really tasty there for me because there wasn't much of that prior to that and and that saving that for his reveal I thought was really fascinating and really good you know yeah that, that's that's one of my favorite um, moments and I remember when we shot it you know it was it was part of our attempt and language of like I did purposefully write a movie with very little dialogue right and 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 I wanted very little like verbal communication I wanted it to be mostly conveyed by you know like the acting and the body language and the camera and that was one of those uh like really dense kind of character moments where that little camera shift tells you this guy's dangerous Mm -hmm. this guy is just you know he comes into the movie and it's like he kind of breaks the screen a little bit and and Kruda and I were were designing those moments a lot because and that's I mean that's what that's what's fun for me like when I watch movies and like the idea that you can just establish who someone is just by moving the camera slightly to the right because the first 12 minutes like the camera's barely panning mm-hmm. I mean it, it shows a certain like for me that's why like, that's what I love in movies because every time I see a, a director or NDP doing that it's like these guys are in control. Like they are in control of the narrative. I am safe. I'm I'm taking this ride, and they just know how to, you know, not only convey the moment, but also how to keep everything so still in the first twelve minutes that that particular moment reads that well. Um, and I I have very fond memories of shooting that scene because it was just really fun. I don't know, like I really liked that moment with the sound and with the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great that was a great moment. You know, coming from the uh, the food world, and I know Mike's a big fan of food, and and I love you know I love watching food shows and and interviews with chefs. Like one of the huge things in in the culinary arts is editing, right? Like it's finding that perfect balance of you know the amount of stuff you put on a plate, but it's also so much about what you don't put on the plate. And you know, I think having that restraint, having those rules, you know, it really brings that point home. It brings these certain shots home, or you know, the certain emotion you're trying to convey. It is my favorite part of directing as well, like the the designing of a, of a of a language, and sort of staying true to that language. And then it it blows my mind how many things that are made. Well, I understand it, but it blows my mind how many things are made where they're just sort of ignoring the language of cinema to a certain extent and they're just using the bare bones of it you know it's it's like saying literally yeah. it's like saying literally after every statement <laughs> and you're just like literally it's so wonderful and you're like god damn it and when, why when, did you have to say it why did yeah. you have to say it and then there hits a point where you know a lot of younger filmmakers out there and i'm i'm, I'm aiming this at you younger filmmakers mm-hmm. that will write to me and go <laughs> like i shot an entire film with a 50 millimeter lens and i'm like was there a reason for it is there a yeah, reason why yeah. you decided to cook an entire meal with a spoon? Is there a reason why you did that? Like, uh, <laughs> if there is, if there's value to it, then great. Let me watch the movie. If not, if you're just doing it because you bought that 50 millimeter lens and you're like, I'm going to use this for everything. It's like, what the fuck, dude? There's a language. Oh, I, had oh, a- I smell a rant coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there I had is. A, 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 a like a wonderful professor in school who like, you know, just just with that kind of concept, just one thing kind of changed my approach to that issue where it's like, you know, when you're when you're in school and you're and you're trying to make a short, 
for class, you know, and they're like, you have to pitch it. And, and typically, you know, they ask you like details about like, how are you going to shoot it? Who are you going to cast? Whatever. Mm -hmm. I had this one professor whom I love and he was like, why? And I was like, I I found myself as a, as a, as a younger filmmaker, always answering like that. Oh, because I have this uh, lens because I want to really want to try. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Why? Like, Mm -hmm. why is this the way to tell that story? Why do you want to tell that story? And I become so relentless with myself in like, until I have a good enough why for why I'm telling this story, why does this movie have to be shot like this? Why does there have to be this style? If I don't have a compelling enough answer, it's just not the right one. And I think it's important to learn to give up on like when you're making a movie or you have to pick your battles a lot of it. I mean, at any budget level, really. Mm-hmm. And asking yourself why, like, what is the point of this? What am I trying to do with it? It's such a good way to filter out, like to filter between like the hills that you should die on and the ones that you just should completely ignore. <laughs> and that, you know, 50 millimeter lens type of answer. It's like, well, that it's just, you know what? That's just not what, like, that's not a compelling enough reason to do that. Because yeah. you want to try it, because it's cool, like because it looks good. It's like everything look everything can be made to look good. Or I mean, most things can be made to look good. It's like why? Why are you using that? Well, and then, you know, for a lot of folks that are listening, I know that some of the stuff may seem like magic and it's like, well, how do you guys know and how do you know the answers to this? I generally my response is like, do more research than just watching YouTube. Like actually go back and watch um, the history of how that camera works or how the, what that lens has meant over the years. What is the sub- subconscious language that has been passed down generation after generation behind using a 50 millimeter lens? And knowing that when you screen it in front of an audience that will re- respond based upon the years and years and years of that use, is that response beneficial or detracting from what emotion you're trying to convey in that sequence? And the, the same thing could be said with dolly moves and camera moves. What does it move to use? What does it mean to use a steady cam? And what does it mean to uh, sound design at this specific spot? And all the way down to the edit of like, mm-hmm. what does it mean when I do a jump cut? What does it mean when I actually cut to a reaction and I hear someone else's uh, statement on that. Like, what does that all convey? Um, and it, it, I don't think it's necessarily a science. It's just, it's just ingrained in us after years and years of watching Jurassic Park and watching like everything that mm. we've seen, you know? Yeah. And uh, also, you know, being able to accept the fact that there, there may not necessarily be like the right answer and it may not necessarily be, you know, like, yes, sometimes you will answer that question incorrectly, but are you staying, are you owning your mistakes as much as your successes on set? You know, are you, are you taking the blame as much as you're, you know, like boasting the success? So, oh, we shot that scene very well. And that, yeah, we're like, we have to do it like that. It's like, just be okay with, you know, uh, clarity is far more important than being right. You know, it's better to, it's better to make a wrong decision than to not make one because you're kind of always wondering whether or not that's the right choice. And I think, you know, coming into making your first movie, that is the hardest, like emotionally speaking, that is the hardest thing. That is the most haunting aspect, I think, of being on set and directing people. Uh, it's like, oh, 
all these things are like, you know, everything you do ultimately will, will stay all the way in one shape or another, all the way until the end of this process. So a choice that you made in 2018 is like, is going to stay with the movie and with you until 2021. And I think personally, what I believe as a director is don't, don't worry too much about like, you know, is, is this really like, don't dwell on whether or not you're always answering that question. Right. Cause it's just, you know, just accept some of the mistakes and like, just be able to answer it. Like just mm -hmm. be able to answer, make, make their own choice sometimes. Um, even though the pressure is, is so big. Cause ultimately, I mean, if you just think about that pressure, it's impossible to always answer. Right. But just, you know, be clear. Um, yeah. Completely. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that statement. It isn't about being right at all. I, I, and then I think the fun part about making movies is that if you're willing to not take it on yourself and yes, you know, you and I have to take on an idea and be the fucking cheerleaders from day one. But when you're actually making the film, if you're working with the right collaborators, if you're working with the right people that you can trust, then making the wrong decision oftentimes leads to a better choice because you have people around you that are going, hey, yeah, but try this and try that. And this isn't a decision that I ever thought I would, I would do. And then, then the movie becomes exciting to me as a director, because then it's, it's not everything that I sat down and sketched out on a pad one day, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not everything I conceive staring at my computers in my safe house in some spot, you know, it's, I'm in the field. Yeah, And that's, and Go that's ahead. part, like, I mean, that's the beauty of working with someone like Kruda for me, you know, it's like, uh, a, he can always get to that why, and he's always interested about the why, and B, he's like, he owns every decision. And as a director, there are moments, I mean, especially in your first movie, there are moments where you either phys physically or figuratively, like, you just want to pass out. And, <laughs> and having a DP who, who owns their choices um, is so important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think having a, you know, having a leader that, that knows the why that has purpose and intent behind why they're there and, and what they're trying to, to get at and what kind of story they're trying to tell, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring, but it also makes it really easy to collaborate, you know, like, you know, working with, with some of the other department heads and, and the technicians under them, you know, we had an amazing production designer, Charlie and, and, a, and a costume designer, Sophia, who, who knew the why and were able to kind of take that and, and run with it and expand on it using their own experiences and their own knowledge. You know, it's, it's impossible to make a movie by yourself and having those people around you that, that are kind of in your headspace, but also can expand on it, you know, and, and collaborate with each other. Charlie gave me wonderful things to shoot, you know, Sophia, Sophia dressed the actors in, in beautiful costumes. And I remember, you know, we would set up a shot, we'd, we'd put a couple stand-ins in and everything would look great. The lighting would be good. The, the production design was great. And something would just like felt off, you know, just, just a little bit like, I don't know how good this is going to be. And then the actors would come and sit in, in mm -hmm. their period wardrobe and that just completed everything. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was, it was beautiful to see. And, and, uh, it all stems from, you know, having that why in the first place. It's funny you say that, uh, because I've been, Filling my time, as you know, Crew Dog, I've been filling my time working with uh, Gina, my girlfriend, who's been doing all these music videos, and I've been lighting for her and doing that. And um, whenever I'm lighting, whenever I'm lighting a, a, a scene, and you know, you're waiting for talent, so talent's never there. So you always are like, "Hey, you stand in." And it's 
it's usually like an ugly grip <laughs> that's dancing <laughs> and you're going through the hard process of like trying to make them look good in front of the camera you're like i don't know is that edge light right is that light? Like, what am i doing here and then you're still looking at it with your arms crossed going man we suck like this sucks and then and then they bring <laughs> in the talent you go oh right right we're not shooting an ugly uh <laughs> an ugly grip today we're shooting this talent and oh shut that light off and shut that light off we don't need those those are the ugly grip lights just so this one light works really well because the talent is fascinating to look at and that brings me to casting on this film mm -hmm. because it at the end of the day on a movie like this that is very quiet um and there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of emotional there isn't a lot of emotional crutch with camera movement and everything. It's very much when, when you lock a camera down, whoever's in front of that camera has to carry everything. Um, mm -hmm. And you've done such a great job with the casting on this that every, I don't think there was a weak link in the chain. I think every actor on screen, I wanted to stare at their face for as long as those cuts were, you know? Yeah, no, they, I mean, I, um, I think you're kind of deciding what movie you're going to have, like, like 90% of it. Um, and I'm purposely exaggerating this, but you're deciding that when you're casting your actors, I mean, they just, they are going to really be the faces, the voices, like the personality of the characters that you write, they're going to be so uh, like wonderfully taken over by the actors who play them. And I was mm -hmm. so blessed with everybody that, that we worked with. I mean, I was so like, it's something so so wonderful also on your first movie. I mean, and I'm speaking here like just complete honesty. Like, you know, you go from making shorts and kind of trying things out and everything, and then you get on set and like Isabel Furman, Stephanie Scott, Rory Culkin, Judith Roberts, all of our main kind of characters and actors on this movie. I mean, I was like, wow, like that is just a level that I, I had never encountered. Uh, mm -hmm. and then there is, you know, and there is them. And then there is the other actors that kind of fill up the rest of the story so wonderfully. And they're all so good and so committed to the period. I mean, they all did like slight accents and they were all like bringing in ideas for their, for their hair and makeup and for their costumes. And they just, they elevated everything. I mean, and it's just, um, I don't know, like I'm, I'm typically like a little speechless when it comes to them because they were, they were just so terrific. Uh, and they're so helpful too, you know, and, and we were talking about how our process is so, you know, it becomes so easy with them on in the scene, actually, when they're standing in for themselves mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're shooting a fantastic scene and everything looks much better, but it's like you, like they were also very thankful to all the departments. I mean, to crew, as Charlie, Sophia, who did the costumes, um, like they were stepping into the scenes in costume and in, in character and everything. And they were stepping into this beautifully lit, very like incredibly production design set. And they just had to, I mean, they just had to be, they felt very comfortable in the, in the discomfort of, of the shooting on location. It's right. like they were, you know, they were as grateful to my crew as we were grateful to them, you know? So I just, it, it was just such a great collaboration. How did the, uh, so being a first time filmmaker, what was the, the casting process like? Did you make a list and give it to your producer or did your producer come to you and say, these are kind of the options that we have to, to pull from? Um, and we definitely made a list um, for, especially for those um, four characters that I mentioned, you know, the two main characters, the, the kind of, 
intruding characters played by Rory Colkin, uh, the matriarch. We, I had given them a list of names because I, I knew that I wanted, that I may have wanted certain people um, of a certain stature for those four roles. Um, and we kind of landed on them. I mean, it, I sometimes I go back to, um, I, I do some talks back, uh, back uh, in school because I, I went to NYU for film school. And like sometimes my professors call me in and the question that the, the kids always ask me was, you know, how do you not kind of, what can you say to actors who have made like 30 movies and they're like, <laughs> they have, you know, they're, they're big and famous or semi-famous, you know, they're real actors. How do you, how do you not embarrass yourself? Like, what do you have to tell them? And the truth is, you know, there's kind of this referential like fear for actors, even of that, ca- I mean, of any caliber really, but like, especially when they have stature and they're, you know, kind of semi-famous. And the truth is, I don't know. I mean, they were, they were great, but it's like, they were so wonderful and they were so curious. And like, you just talk to them about the fucking movie. You mm-hmm. just tell them this is what the movie is. And this goes back to the whys of, you know, why we want to tell a story. Like you need those whys because that's how you beat the fear. That's mm-hmm. how the first time director can make his way, can walk his way onto a set, onto like a collaboration with actors that are that good um, and fairly known. It's like, just know your whys. Talk about the movie. Like they are going to, so many actors are out there truly looking for something different to do. Yeah. And it's like this whole myth that when an actor hits it so big, they don't want to do anything else. And I mean, I'm sure there are some actors who are like that. But there's a plethora of great, fan- fantastic, famous, Oscar-nominated actors who are just looking forward to someone sending them a script that's this grungy and dark and dirty and, and quiet and, and this and that. <laughs> like the first time that I talked with Isabel Furman, um, whose character is probably one of the quietest in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the first time we talked, I mean, jokingly, she asked me, so I say more or less seven lines in this movie. <laughs> there is a character that comes in at some point. Uh, there, the, There's this matriarch that like, whose finger is like enter my throat. And like, she, she, she mutes me. And, and, and then this guy comes over and assaults me. And I'm like, Pretty much, yeah. And she was like, "Great, can't wait." You know, it, it, it's it's <laughs> actors, actors who like there are so many actors who are just looking for something like that because it is fun and it is interesting. And as long as you talk about the movie and about those whys, um, they disappear behind that. You know, like you could be talking to anybody at that point. Yeah, and and to understand those whys, you got to do your homework. It really. Mm-hmm comes down to doing your homework as a director and spending that yeah. time and understanding understanding your script inside and out and understanding you know what is the emotional context of each scene what is the emotional event that happens in each scene and just being able to answer all the questions uh, confidently that come at you it's it's a great advice knowing the why yeah and especially uh, you know if you're making a period piece that also um, also means like doing good research on the period and like uh um you know being able to um to answer those questions that are unanswerable like how did they speak how what was the body language it's like you know you got to find those 19th century like uh, personal journals uh, that are in some dark corners of, of google where <laughs> people are talking about how they would spend their days you know working the fields or 
uh, like praying or not doing anything. And it's like you get the dialogue from, you know, that's the, those are like the nitty gritty things that the little detailing that even if people don't like actively notice them on the movie, they color everything else. It will affect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what I might add, too, is from, like, more of a practical perspective or an on-set perspective that there needs to be a level of of respect and professionalism. And, you know, it's not just about being respectful of the crew or a PA or whatever. You know, I think I think we as as filmmakers also need to, you know, and, and especially a lot of crew people, you know, I think they need to understand that that actors jobs are extremely difficult like they could we come in and you know we turn on a camera we turn on a light we we do maybe something creative something technical these are people that have to basically stop being themselves and dump themselves into someone else's experience Mm -hmm. and then go and and be very vulnerable and put Mm -hmm. that on Mm -hmm. the second action is called you know and and having an environment where they feel comfortable where they're treated like people and celebrated for what they do you know i think there's always a hollywood glamour and you know all the red carpet stuff but in the real day-to-day of of shooting a film like Mm -hmm. this is what happens on the ground and and uh you know having giving them that space to embody those characters and tell that story it's just as important as any other major thing that you would do on a set it's a good point because we've seen it before like it's oftentimes there is sort of a divide or sometimes there could be a divide on set between crew and talent. And there is like, you know, sometimes there is this sense that like talent is like emotional. You and, can't look at them in the eyes. Yeah. And it's like, you, you know, and you're sort of disconnected from it. And and really that comes down from us fellas that comes down from the top. Yep. And I think it's us setting the tone and, and, you know, uh, us setting the tone as directors, but and then also hopefully you're working with producers that aren't pieces of shit. And then uh, <laughs> you're you're also from Crudy. It's really coming from you to set the tone for a whole team underneath you for that too. Yeah, um, I mean a lot of a lot of times they'll instead of asking the director, they'll ask me like, how did that look? How did that work? You know, <laughs> that's true. And, and uh, you know, I I kind of have to be the director's like right hand person. And, and help keep them, keep the, the cast in that space to keep doing well, you know, if they are doing well. Um, you know, it's it's part of the, the greater collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the point, we're just farming. It's such a great term. We're just farming like really cool, <laughs> cool moments from people, you know, and we're not, we're not necessarily, you know, putting our moments in there. We're not saying like, this is the moment that I want. So give it to me. You know, it's, it's, you're farming it out of these emotional vessels, if you will. Uh, and you know, they, it is a scary fucking thing. I I mean, I've been in front of camera. I'm sure you guys have been in front of camera before. It's, it's, it's unnerving. It's unnerving. It's terrible. Yeah. No, it's terrible. And one of my, uh, one of my favorite, um, Speaking of the relationship between actors and the cinematographer, um, one of my favorite kind of cinematography cliches is, you know, keep the camera rolling after the the director calls cut. Mm-hmm. It, 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 there are so many, so many moments in this movie, and I think in every good movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. that are literally like at least four or five seconds after I've already called cut. Like my editor and I, you know, like we're taking out my fucking voice. Because those are moments of, you know, like genuine emotion or like you see the characters kind of coming out of the 
the pressure of getting, you know, of hitting their mark or saying the line correctly, but they're still in character. Mm -hmm. Like there's that beautiful little bubble of just perfect, genuine human behavior um, that a good DP will always understand, you know, like just, just, just mine for it, you know, just be there, just be there. Yeah. It's a personal rule for me to never cut until the actor breaks character. And I always find that, you know, once the edit comes back around, someone's like, oh, thank God you didn't cut because I have those moments. So, well, yeah, I think that's a good policy. Well, Critter, we literally built an a, a award-winning performance out of like talents of yeah. stuff. So, like, it, it is very much the case. I, I was working with, a, with another shooter recently and, and uh, they weren't rolling on rehearsals. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? roll on rehearsals it's 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 video it doesn't matter like what's going on just roll <laughs> roll yeah. on rehearsals because because you want to invite that person back into the edit room and go like okay so we spent all day making sure those highlights were right on the specular background stuff that you were dealing with and look how many clips i have for the scene in the bin i've got two clips <laughs> it's like well i've got some props and i don't think you'll like them <laughs> 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 yeah, it's because it's stressful when you get into that edit room and you're sitting there going, man, I was so obsessed with this fucking drug. And all I needed was some coverage. And if I got some coverage or if I got like a response or a reaction here, then the audience wouldn't be pulled out right now. Um, yeah, so. one of one of the uh, it's that. And for me, like, you know, every time, like the one thing that always comes up with uh, with me and my editor is like, ah, oh, can you know, how much more do we have of that shot? Like, uh, yeah. did we just cut it there? Or like, do we not have like, a, what, like, you know, like 10 more frames? Cause, cause that does make a difference. And uh, so you're always mining for more. And you know, that rule of never cut, never actually cutting com um, camera until, you know, like so long as the character is in character, um, it, it, it's so precious. And it's like, you're doing, you know, it's easier to realize that you're trying to, create that experience on a smaller movie but like when you're shooting something you know like bigger and like you your departments are you know you have more people and you have more equipment and you're on a sound stage and everything just you know like the little town turns into a freaking city mm -hmm. uh it, it, it's like you have to protect that little beautiful like beacon at the center of it that makes an actor forget that they're acting mm -hmm. that it's fake that it's not happening God, when you're making like a fucking period piece, it's like how many, how much can I do, and can my DP and my production designer, my costume designer do, um, everybody on my crew to make them forget that it's 2019. Yeah, because because it's 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 too important, and you know that that can also that's just as easy as you know, don't go talk to the actors afterwards, give them a second, give them a beat, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like there's so much that can get in the way of the genuine of the purity of that moment. And to some degree, you have to make yourself invisible, which is something that I would advise any director to do also a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like the whole like myth of directors kind of entering their actor's psyche and breaking them down and yeah. taking so, sort of carving out the performance out of their like the, the deepest corners of their psyche. That's fucking bullshit. It's just, yeah. it's just, it's bullshit. And it, I think it's generally speaking also bad practice because you end up like traumatizing a person yep. <laughs> more, more often than not. So just, just sit back. Well, dude, and there also hits a point where I'm like, I'm an, I'm, I'm barely literate. 
<laughs> so yeah. like I'm gonna th- I'm gonna fill your brain with all my bullshit. Like no 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 no. Yeah. Like like, like if- by by the end of every day, you know, because I'm Italian and and like you know my my accent is generally pretty good. By fucking 5 p.m., I sound like a freaking I don't know, like a like like I went back to the motherland for like seven months, and and now I'm relearning English, and like I forget words, and I and I just say I I roll my R's like 5 p.m. You know, it's it's it's, it's, it's bad. At so least at least up, you know. At least for you, when you get tired, it goes to a romantic language. <laughs> when I get no, tired, I'm it's not, just like, man, it's like, I'm not sure it sounds romantic at that point. <laughs> I smell bad. And it's like, uh, the, you know, like the breath really, really starts to smell after like 4 30, 5 p.m. or something like that. And, and it's like, there's nothing romantic about it. Well, that's why Crude and I get along so well, is he has been able to decipher my fucking grunts and points and, you know, and yeah. all my fucking noises. <laughs> You don't even have to speak anymore. It's just, you know, yeah. it's the sound of like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> Which by the, and actually also to this point, there's such a beautiful virtue in saying sometimes, you know, to a specific question to answer, I don't know mm-hmm. to your crew, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 there's something. So actually I think I find, or at least that's, that's a feedback that I got from my, from my actors or from my editor and some people in my crew. It's like, just being clear about your lack of knowledge on something, that is just its own kind of particular form of clarity. Yeah. Like to be able to say, okay, how do we shoot this? You know what? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Instead of, instead of pretending like you're always in the know, you're always just on top of everybody else, and it's like you know how everything is supposed to go, because when that's not true, that looks terrible. That does, just does not work. It's like the honesty and the the like the lack of self obsessiveness that that comes with being able to say I don't know, mm-hmm. and you just have a whole crew of you know like people like Cruda, like uh, production designer, costume, great actors, who are going to f- I don't know I feel like there's so much more confidence that's built into that into that answer. Yeah. Well, and it, it, really, it all stems from confidence. I've talked with multiple people on the show about that on getting to a point as a director where you are confident in the fact that even though you don't know what you're doing, even though you've never done this before. And every time we do a project, I, I, what do I, what do I know about this yet? I haven't done it yet. I can tell you yeah. as a pro after fucking doing it, all the things that I did, but before then I just don't know. And, and once you sort of embrace that and you're not feeling insecure about that, then that's yeah. where creativity comes completely. And it's yeah. a, it's a weird game. I'm learning this shit now. It's a weird game going from like putting together a movie and like going in and out of rooms where you have to be very confident and you have to be the person that has all the answers. And if you walk into a room full of investors and you go, I don't know, then then a lot of the eyeballs sort of move around in weird ways. Yeah. And so, oh yeah, and that's that's an entirely that's such a I mean that's a fucking yeah. It, I was about to say that that's a, a different kind of animal, but it's just its own kind of angry monster of yeah. an animal. You know, it's completely I don't know. It's like you are like sort of checking your own like micro expressions on your face to make sure that that none of none of what you're doing looks like you you don't know your shit. But uh, and that's its own kind of animals. But I think that's why you know. <laughs> Generally, I prefer 
shooting a movie than pitching a movie. <laughs> it's generally much less stressful. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's like, it's, it's the same concept as, you know, like there is a way of making a very interesting movie about boredom. There is a, like, there's a, a beautiful clarity in saying, I don't know. Yeah. But it is, people can smell the bullshit when you clearly don't know and you're trying to pretend like you don't. That's lack of clarity. Yeah, totally. It's 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 fascinating right now because I I've spent years and years and years sort of figuring out how to how to communicate with actors, how to communicate with crew, how to get folks at the at the fifteenth hour to become inspired again and to push through and want to work on stuff. And you spend all that time sort of building a sense of confidence, and then <laughs> the, the crazy thing about our job is our job is constantly going, hey, do you feel comfortable? Do you have some footing right now? Swipe, you know, and you just, you face plant over and over and over yeah. again with what we do, and and you, you try to dust yourself off and go, oh, okay, sorry, sorry, for, for a fraction of a fucking second there, I built a foundation in which I'm gonna build something, and you guys knocked it down. Okay, I got it, I'm supposed to just be, I'm supposed to be nervous all the fucking time. Yeah, all right, all right, I got it. Yeah, and, but it, it, that's the thing. Like you're, you're. Uh, I was reading this quote this morning about you know, um, I think it was about writing, but like the idea that um, at some point when you become you know like a good enough writer or like an experienced enough writer, you're gonna sort of stop being afraid of getting bad notes or like revisiting your your own writing. But the truth is, <laughs> it's like you're just supposed to do it afraid. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to do it nervous. And, uh, um, you know, there is, <laughs> there is a photo from the first hour of the first day of shooting of, uh, of me doing a fucking face, uh, like <laughs> of my hand on my face, doing a face palm, like just hour number one of day number one. It's like, it, it's, <laughs> you're supposed to do it afraid, man. You're just supposed to, yeah. uh, which is why you need people that you can rely on next to you. Yeah, you know, I think there's a there's also an interesting aspect of of this saying like, oh, I don't know. I, it, the, I think it was um, was it uh, Ira Glass? He has that whole speech on on how it takes ten thousand hours to to become an expert mm -hmm. at something. And mm -hmm. I, I think early on in it, he talks about how when you first start something, you're bad at it, but you also know you're bad. Um, yeah. You might not know exactly why, but you can look at it and say this sucks, and that that's what what drives you to get better and then you can do stuff that sucks less and then you can start figuring out why it sucks. So, you know, the, the counterpoint to saying, I don't know, is also knowing, you know, you set up a shot or you, you know, you try on some wardrobe or there's a, a line delivered a certain way and you might not know how to get it to be good, but you know that it's not good. So, so you yeah. have there and try and figure it out and, you know, work with the people around you to, to come up with a solution. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the it's it, it's the whole I think I, I listened to this um, screenwriting podcast um, on uh, on Spotify I think and the, there's this uh, it's like a, a two uh, Oscar nominated writers and they both uh, at some point in their life they worked at uh, Disney or Pixar or both mm -hmm. and the the Disney motto with storytelling in general is fail fast it's like <laughs> get to where you recognize your mistake as quickly as possible like that that shows growth it's not about not making that mistake it's not about not not making that error it's like can you identify it can you see it that you know i it takes me those ten thousand hours now to see just just see that mistake and all i can hope for for you know like 20 30 years from now is that i'm just going to be able to see that mistake 
faster. quickly. It's not yeah. about not making it. Yeah. 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 And then just getting used to eating your own shit. That's really what it comes down to. <laughs> it's yeah, just man. getting getting used to it. Just getting used to sitting there going like, oh, right, okay. And it, yeah, I don't know if you feel the same way, either of you guys, but for me, it's, you know, you're trying to build a confidence level in which you can, you know, sur- you know survive <laughs> emotionally mm-hmm. for a lot of this stuff. And then when you... I just find that as soon as I become comfortable, as soon as I get to the point where I'm like, I know what I'm doing, you know? I've done like, you know, how many fucking music, I've done like 45 music videos or whatever the fuck. I know how to do this shit. Then you show up and you're ready to rock. And and there are just so many variables that will knock you on your ass. And you just have to sit there and go, oh, right, I forgot what my shoe tastes like. Right, okay. Yeah. Like, it's fine. (laughs) All right, I can, and, and you're right. It's like getting over it as quickly as you possibly can. And and trying to like pick yourself up and go, oh, okay, all right. Well, what are we? What are we dealing with? And how can we make this work? And um, yeah, and just knowing that every that every movie or every project, I mean, um, especially if it's a project that's emotionally close to you, yeah. um, <laughs> it, 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 it it's gonna it's gonna find its way to breaking you. Like you may have done 20, 30, 40, like a hundred fucking movies. Movie a hundred and one uh, will will give you something that you don't know how to fucking deal with. Mm-hmm. And that's the, it, like, you've got to, you've got to accept that. Like I was talking, I've been talking with crude about this, um, um, next idea for, uh, a movie that involves a lot of water scenes. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, like we started to talk about it a little bit, like we barely kind of touched on it, <laughs> but I, you know, like I asked him, like, have you, have you done a lot of water stuff? Uh, and he was like, not much. I was like, good. Me neither. Guess we're fucking learning together. <laughs> like yep. you just, and if you're not, if you don't encounter that moment, I mean, what's interesting about ma- making movies then? Yeah. Right. If you're not, if you're not going through that. Right. Right. And, and then it's not challenging enough in general. Like, yeah, no, it's cool, man. Like, in, like how are we doing on time here? We're at like an hour and a half. Okay. You guys okay on time? I got yeah. all day. Okay. I mean, I, I could go on forever, which is a problem for you guys but uh it's never a problem for it's it's never a problem for me this is this is what i fill my days with is just talking into a microphone to an invisible person on the other end here (laughs) it's what i do wow beautiful snapshot (laughs) into the life of uh, any any man or woman in the film industry after the past couple of years i guess yeah 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 um well let's see let's talk a bit about well, I think we've talked a lot about this film, and I think it's a fantastic film. You guys should all go see it that are listening. Uh, Shutter just picked it up, right? Isn't that the deal? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Hell yeah, we, man. We're going to be on Shutter sometime in 2022. That's fantastic, dude. Well, congratulations. Yeah, no, I'm super, super excited, super honored. Um, I've been using their platform for a little while, and like, man, they got, they got like such, I don't know. I feel like especially now, like after very troubling year and a half with the pandemic and everything the movies that i go after are you know they have to i just have to go somewhere else with my mind so often mm-hmm. and uh, that's what genre does to me so many times and i think a place like shutter like i just i don't know it, it's it's great to use and i feel super super grateful that they decided to work with us the thing that I like about it in general is that it is a curated outlet. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting something on Netflix, there's a risk of it be just being lost in some 
you know, oh, Q, complete Q. And then, and then whatever, like my girlfriend's algorithm, my movie wouldn't show up on, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're like, ah, man, why would I want to? And so at least with Shutter and the fact that it is a subscription service that you know that the people are signing up for that are horror fans. They are diehard horror fans. Yeah. Um, no, and it, I mean, it gives you so much, so much of a chance for many more people to see it. Like, you know, it's uh, the politics of, like what movies get watched on mm-hmm. on Netflix. I mean, the politics and the math of what movies get watched on Netflix is just, it, it can be pretty terrifying. And I think, you know, there's something quite alluring about, it's like when people pitch you an investment for, for like a product and they say, oh, this market generated, you know, like 50 billion the last year. It's like Netflix has 226 million people as a viewership. Wouldn't you want your movie? to be watched by 226 million people it's like yeah but the problem is that because there are so many people and because they just expect a certain type of movie they're never going to fucking watch my first movie so yeah so it, find a space that's you know of course that has enough exposure because we're also talking about a streaming platform that has like whose uh, subscriber count is in the millions somewhere in the millions um but that it's like you said it curates it like i used to um have a subscription to movie too then now i um i don't have any more because i i'm i'm trying to trying to save up a little bit on the, <laughs> on my subscriptions but it's kind of the same thing as movie like the curated and certain movies are available at certain times like they try to replicate the experience mm-hmm. of you going to a movie theater as in like oh let's tune it let's go watch that at this particular time like on this day this month and whatnot so the curated aspect it's also like you just have a better chance of getting good movies because there are people thinking about like, okay, what should we show people on Tuesday, Wednesday? Like they have like live shows and, uh, and uh, you know, like streaming, like where they stream a movie live on Thursday night and they have like uh, themes, like, you know, they have like a whole like 70s Jalo, you know, like Saturdays or something. And that's mm-hmm. just, I don't know. I feel I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so happy that we're going to be a part of that. That's fantastic, man. That's awesome. Um, I was. I just wanted to add that that I think for a movie like this, that's a horror film, or you know, horror or sci-fi too. Has they both have really wonderful fan bases, <laughs> and if you just kind of yeah. throw it, you know, throw it in the midst of everything else on like a Netflix, like you know, it's well, say what you will about Netflix, but there's there, it's just it just gets lost in the sea. And knowing yeah. horror fans and knowing the people that that love these movies and love the culture around it, putting it in a place that curates it a little bit more and and lets them, you know, celebrate it in in their wacky ways, because they are, you know, they are a, a wild bunch of people. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, obviously, I, I love them. I think I think it's great. I, I just did a movie a couple months ago where. You know, it's total campy horror film, and half the crew and and some of the you know above the line folks were major major horror fans. Yeah, and making that was just so much fun because they were just like, you know, I think at one point the the producer was like, oh yeah, we're gonna do a limited run of, of VHS copies of this film, and a couple of the wow. crew, like the biggest horror like horror folks were just like ecstatic. They're like, oh my god, get me in line, I want the first VHS we got, you know. <laughs> So that is so fucking good. That is so yeah. fun. Yeah. Right. But it, I mean, we're, I yeah, mean, no, no, no. we're all horror fans. Like at least the three of us are, we're all horror fans. We all love that. The experience of seeing a movie and it, and the experience of watching a movie with your friends and the experience of being a part of that. And 
I have fucking loved going back into the theater again and, and being in, yeah. in a room with folks. Um, yeah, it's just, there, there, Crudy, you can hear me winding up. There, there we go. <laughs> it's just so depressing when you're using the same technology to decide what food you're getting from Grubhub <laughs> and you're using that same tech to figure out what movie you're watching at night. And you're just like, oh, do I have to go through this swiping and this algorithm swipe? Can someone tell me about something that's great and like a real person? Can this not come out of like Arnold Schwarzenegger's mouth from Terminator? Can this be, can this be from someone real? Um, it, it really changes everything. It really does. Yep. And and making movies, I think a film like yours really relies on that because, as you said, a lot of your thumbnails are dark. You you guys really don't have there's good trailer meat, but there isn't like that. You you don't have trailer meat that's going to compete with like the the IV trash that's on Netflix. You know what I mean? Where people are like, oh shit, Optimus Prime is in this. Oh, I'm going to watch that first. You know. Yeah. Like, so you really are reliant upon folks that that are, are ready to sit down and have an experience and are ready and have the patience and, and people that are asking their friends going like, what's the deal with this movie? And they go, oh, fuck, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you need to see it because it's got this and this and this and this and this and it. Like, yeah. And that's why festivals like Fantasia, which we premiered yesterday. Are that's like, so cool. Man, I mean, it's so it's so they're so important because you have that 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 crowd that's very enthusiastic i mean very numerous but also enthusiastic and they're kind of wild in the best way you know that is that is the like that is one of the festivals that builds that word of mouth that's the directly catered um to that type of crowd and so like they're they do things so i mean i have been reading about so many other movies that have been premiering you know um since it started like i want to fucking watch them because mm -hmm. does that like there's such a such a good word of mouth that's built right into the audience that's eventually going to watch it on a platform like Shudder. Mm -hmm. And for me, when they ask me, like, I don't know, I feel like I just want people to watch my movie and not <laughs> for, like, not because I want from some sort of, like, self-obsessed point of view. It's like, I mean, I mean why, why are we telling stories? Like, who are we telling stories to? It's like you want to connect with people. And the fact that, you know, this type of word of mouth is provided, it's uh, like so beautifully provided by places like Fantasia or like Fright Fest that were going to be at the end of the month. And, you know, like places like Shutter, they see them. They're like, let's curate that, that experience. I mean, it's just, just a, such a bunch of wonderful movie lovers. Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting your movie to be seen. You know, like I, I, I will vet projects based on, on how likely they are to be seen because, it's it's such a journey. I mean, especially for for you guys being directors. I mean, like the the three to five or six or seven year journey that it takes to get a film made. Like, why would you put all that effort in? You know, for me, it's maybe four or five months. But you know, why would you yeah. put all that effort in? Why would you put yourself out there emotionally? Like, you know, movies can break people. You know, like why why would you not want it to be seen and have something to show for all that, that effort and, you know, emotional destruction for lack of a better term. It's, well, yeah. I mean, it's like you're having, I, know, I mean, any movie you make, you're stuck with for like a few years. So you gotta, something's gotta, gotta keep you there. Well, it's all, really. the, all the way around. Well put on both angles here. And I, 
selfishly for myself, and I'm going to speak selfishly here. Um, there's a reason why there's a reason why I do barbecues. There's a reason why I like to cook for people. And yeah. and you know, I just did that this weekend. I went to a party that with a bunch of people that I didn't know, and I spent the morning smoking sausages and sat on the beach next to a cooler and handmade sandwiches to strangers oh. because I like to make people fucking happy. Like there's something yeah. really great about entertaining folks, and and I I guess there might be a bit of ego involved, but more than not, it's like I want to see if the techniques that I've put into this thing you respond to, and I want to see if if the experience that I had years ago that it inspired this fucking thing, if I was able to take the language of cinema to recreate just the slightest taste of what I felt before I fell on the ice, then fuck yeah, yeah. and and so that's the whole reason to do it. it like obviously we're not doing it for money <laughs> obviously no obviously you know we're not getting paid you know and and hourly if you broke it down you know i might as well be like laying pavement with my bare hands for how much money i make <laughs> for these projects so um there there has to be a reward to this and if you're listening to this look i can sit here and say like oh there there ha there is a selfish reason there is a fucking selfish reason and it's because I like to make people scared. I like to freak people the fuck out. I like to piss people off. And that's the reason why I make movies, you know? Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, you gotta, like, it's it's gotta be directed towards something that is ultimately outside of you, I think. And whether or not that is, like, from a, from a selfish point of view, of, you know, like, I like to make people happy because I'm happy, like, which I don't, I don't know. I feel like if you if you're doing this thing and you're not doing it so that people like you, you're doing it right. Like it, it, mm -hmm. it, it's so important to separate yourself from, from the movies you're making because they're, you know, it's like if you get a bad review on a movie, like that's not a bad review on your life. Right. right? And it's important. Right. It's important to separate yourself from it. Um, and it's very, very difficult. Uh, but it's like, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm not looking for compassion through this, but yes, I do want to scare people. I do want to make them happy. I do want to give them an experience because there is just, it's a way to connect. Yep. Like I, I grew up having a really bad speech impediment and, and like, and I couldn't fucking speak. And, and then I, I was able to through a lot of, you know, like therapy and uh, shit like that. And then now I'm making movies and I'm realizing, you know, I, I was having this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. It's like, cause I'm in love with words and movies mm. gave me the love for words and communication back and i want people to be there for it because i want to fucking talk to them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's wonderful that's actually wonderful um yeah fellas this has been great i'm i think we should wrap this up i think this has been really good um like i said uh you both killed it and your entire team killed it i think this movie came out fantastic um, I'm happy that, uh, Crudy, I'm happy selfishly that you have this on your reel. Cause then I can, uh, be pitching things. Uh, but in, in general, I think that, uh, the audience is really going to respond to this film. And I, I was very happy to hear that Shredder picked it up. And, um, and if you have an opportunity, is this going to get any sort of theatrical or are you guys just going straight to Shredder? Do you know? Um, well, it depends on, it's more a question of where, you know, like uh, Shutter picked it up for uh, a few territories and I think ultimately that's going to be the first place that it comes out, but there are a lot of territories that are outstanding and then we haven't quite covered with Shutter yet. So, so we'll see. I'm hoping like 
we haven't quite. I cannot speak about this. I'm mm -hmm. about to say something that I cannot say. That's fine. But That's general, fine. It's dangerous territory. Generally speaking, um, there are some territories that are outstanding, and I'm hoping that uh, someone takes a chance on this movie to be shown in theaters, because. As much as that scares me a little bit, because objectively there's going to there would be less of an audience mm -hmm. um, putting a movie out just in theaters. Um, I love to be able to offer that experience too, because this is a you know it's a dark, atmospheric movie, and I have watched it in a theater-like space at, at our post facility, and it's like, trust me, it's better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, guys. My God, thank, thank you. you so much for this. Yeah. I feel like now I just, I want to, I want to fucking make a movie now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, it's, it's great, but it's also like, I'm desperate now. I'm like, oh shit, this is so, ah, oh, I missed this. We're going to have to time it out right. See, it's like we're sharing. Yeah. It's like we're both sharing a girlfriend right now. <laughs> That's true. We're gonna have to time it out right. You let me know when you're doing yours, and I'll let you know when I'm doing mine, and then we'll. Sounds like a deal. What is that, Cruda? Yeah. Did... Uh, that's New York. <laughs> Beautiful soundscape of New York. But anyway, th thank you, fellas, for being on the show. Thank, thank you, Mike. You, Much appreciated. All right, that's the show. Thank you, Eduardo. Thank you, Crew Dog, for being here. Thanks for sharing your experiences on making such a wonderful film, a scary film, a film that's going to creep you out. There, there are quite a few scenes in that movie that have stuck with me since I've watched it, and they will stick with me. And uh, like I said, like we talked a bit about on the show, there's a bunch of techniques used in the language of cinema that I appreciated. So it's nice, man. Hopefully I get to get together with those two guys. Sit around and have some beers and talk real shit without this microphone documenting everything. <laughs> we can get into it. A um, lot of stuff on the way. I'm, this episode I'm probably going to try to get out next week. Uh, I'm recording this on the 16th. But I have a few other episodes that are in the queue with some really great folks. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode with a storyboard artist i've got another episode rolling in with a musician that we all know so like we're, we're we're swapping it out we're changing it up we're trying to keep it fresh fresh and on point for everybody um and let me know what you think please 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 leave a review for the show leave a review uh on apple Podcasts. just scroll down on the app and then leave a review. It's at the very bottom. So scroll down all the way down and say, hey, would you like to leave a review? Would you like to rate this? And leave me a review. Tell me I suck. I don't care. Just leave me something. It's helpful. Um, and that's it, man. I'm not going to gab your ear off. Let's, let's, let's get out of here. So I'll see you guys next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.